likely I can't see you. I don't know if there's anywhere in this room that I can place myself where I can see everybody. But the good news is you've got a mirror and you can have an intelligent conversation with that. (laughs) Well, today's our introduction to the theme of hope. So far, Paul's been dealing with faith. And uh, we're going to look at now faith and hope as our next uh, tripartite theme. And I've entitled uh, my talk, Future Glory and Present Hope. I'll be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 27, which Frida read to us. And if you've got a Bible, uh, please feel free to have the passage open in front of you. And I know that uh, really this morning, I'm just a substitute for another guy. I look pretty tall, but my heels are high. Um, But I'll do my best to um, bring God's word to you faithfully this morning. If we think about hope, it's good to think about it in the present moment. If I could ask you, what are you hoping for right now? You could take a few moments just to reflect. A short sermon? Okay, I'll do my best to keep it a little shorter than Paul's. Maybe something you're looking forward to buying. You know, a new car, new computer. A new facility, a new dress, or maybe something just involves personal relaxation and uh, enjoyment, like a holiday, or your kids volunteering to do the washing up. Yeah, right. (laughs) What's interesting about many of the things that we hope for, either hope to own or hope to experience, and I'm not saying that it's bad to hope for these things, is that once we have them, once we experience them, they actually stop offering us hope. If I was to take you on a tour of my apartment, I could show you lots of things that at one stage I'd hoped to own, like a properly functioning fridge, or a desk that allows me to spread out all my papers, or a lounge that doesn't sag in the middle. So I could take you around my apartment, and I could sit at my desk, but I would look pretty silly if I would say, sitting at that desk, wow, this desk fills me with so much hope. You know, I don't tend to do that. I tend to use it. And Paul, in this passage in Roman, he asks a very pointed question about hope in verse 24. He asks, who hopes for what he already has? I mean, the fact is that our lives and our homes are full of things that were in some way sources of hope for us. But now, in the present, they no longer provide those feelings of hope. Paul puts it this way. He says, hope that is seen is no hope at all. I think the great tragedy of our culture, our materialistic culture, is that there are people around us whose lives are littered with things that look valuable and interesting. Nice cars, nice houses, works of art, tropical holidays, uh, Michelin restaurant meals. But these things actually turn out to provide No hope, either for this world or the next. In the light of this, let's consider Paul's statement in in verse 25, where he says, But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Think about that for a second. And maybe some of the big things in your own life some of those things that you planned for and waited. Graduation, 
obtaining a job, getting married, perhaps the birth of your first child. If you're a little bit older than me, retirement. We wait for these things with a genuine sense of looking forward and knowing that our plans will come to fruition. But let's consider more deeply the context of how Paul talks about our waiting in this passage in Romans. Up until this point in the letter of Romans, Paul has been outlining the concept of salvation. And he's been doing that through different stories and metaphors. And he's explained how the Spirit of Christ enables a Christian to break free from slavery. It was a common metaphor in his his day and age because there were so many slaves around. Breaking free from the slavery of sin and death, becoming one of God's children adopted into his family. Now, in the Greek and Roman world, adoption was quite a common practice. And sometimes people adopted their favourite slaves. And an adopted son would actually be granted all the privileges and rights of a natural son, including inheritance. So who is God's natural and firstborn son that Paul talks about in this passage? It's Jesus. Who are the adopted sons? We are. And so Paul uses this idea of adoption so to help us understand that we share with Christ the glory that God the Father bestows. That's our inheritance right. And then, according to verse 17 also, we share in something of the suffering that Jesus experienced. Speaking of suffering, I've had a, a sinus infection for a number of weeks, so I'm, I'm struggling with that, but uh, I'll get there. But here you might want to stop and pause and ask about this very unfortunate word, suffering. Suffering. What a dreadful word. I mean, can you imagine talking about suffering at a dinner party? Just when everyone's had a nice meal, a few glasses of wine, the conversation's flowing. Somebody mentions the situation in Darfur, or what happened in Auschwitz, or somebody who they know who has terminal cancer. I mean, no one wants, in our day and age, much to talk about or deal with suffering. What's suffering got to do with hope? They seem like poles apart, don't they? Actually, if we look at this passage here in Romans, these things, suffering and hope, are inextricably interlinked. Let's have a look at verses 18 to 23 once again. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Well... In order to really understand these verses, we need to come back to this central metaphor that he uses. And that brings us back to a place that we all started in, the maternity ward. 
at some point, we all came into the world covered in slime and blood, looking pretty ugly. I always think babies are ugly till they're about three months old. In a process that involved hours of pain and sweat and hard work for our mothers. Now, you probably can't remember your own birth. Any hands up? Okay, you'd get the credit for long-term memory, okay? But those of you who are mothers know exactly what I was just talking about firsthand. I mean, I can only talk about it vicariously. I mean, I witnessed the birth of my two children, and I do have a memory that when my son was being delivered, the doctor came up to me and he said, you'd better sit down. It was in Broken Hill Base Hospital. I must have been looking pretty pale. And I think he was worried I was going to collapse on the floor. But Paul is explaining the idea of birth. He's using the metaphor of birth in a bigger way here. He's referring to the agonising process whereby the whole of creation, the whole of God's created order, the whole cosmos is undergoing a rebirth from within the body of the old creation, which is marred and distorted by sin, a new and physically perfect creation is emerging. It's being delivered. It's a painful and slow process. But God foreknew that this process would happen. And just as a mother is willing to go through with the pain of child labour in the hope of loving and raising her own baby, So God has willingly subjected creation to a short period of difficulty and frustration and turmoil from which will emerge a renewed creation that will last eternally. It's an amazing image. Right now, we're listening to the groans of the old creation world. We hear its sin, we hear its stress, we hear its suffering... We sense it struggling to give birth to a future which we glimpse only dimly through faith. And you also might notice in this passage that Paul talks about us, about all Christians joining in the birth pangs, somehow groaning inwardly as we await this glorious future. But we live in the not yet. That's our struggle. We sense it, but it's not yet. And so our hope is bound up with patient suffering. But Paul reassures us this. Our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In us? Wait a moment. What's he talking about here? In us? For most of us, when we talk about the Bible, think about the glory of God, the image of glory is something external. I mean, we find lots of biblical images that talk about glory radiating from some sort of external source, like a burning bush or or a cloud or, or a voice coming down from heaven. But Paul says the glory will be revealed within us. And in verse 23, he talks about a glory that will impact upon our physical bodies. He says, the redemption of our body. I don't know how you feel about your body, but I know my body's not really what I want it to be particularly over the last few weeks with this sinus infection. Redemption of my body? What Paul is talking about here is 
a life-after-death experience that was very familiar to a Jewish audience, but it's pretty strange to modern ears. You don't find many conversations about this concept. It's the concept of resurrection. It's the idea that on Christ's return, on the day of judgment, those who have died will be granted a new and perfect body. Now, from what we can gather about New Testament thinking on this idea, the image is not one of a soul or spirit that somehow floats up, separate from the body. No. When we're resurrected, we're resurrected into a new physical body. And it seems significantly different to the body which has died and decayed, but it's still, nevertheless, a physical entity. And in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul explains this idea of resurrection like this. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, where on earth did Paul get these ideas from? I mean, was he on drugs? Did he have an overactive imagination? What is this idea of resurrection? Well, it actually came directly from an encounter that he and the apostles had with the resurrected Christ. It was an encounter that many others had before him um, in Jerusalem, just a few days after Jesus' death on the cross. Probably you do know the stories. Jesus appears in a physical body, walking, talking and eating. At first, people didn't recognise him. Mary didn't know who he was. She thought he was the gardener. At first, Thomas refused to believe that it was the Lord until he touched physically the wounds in Jesus' resurrected body. So this body must have seemed a bit strange. And strangely enough too, it was a body that was unrestrained by normal physical limitations. You know, Jesus could do things like enter locked rooms and vanish in an instant. He could suddenly reappear elsewhere. Against all the known certainties of medical science, but according to our first century eyewitnesses, Jesus returned from the dead in a body that was somehow similar to his old body and yet remarkably different. So when Paul actually writes in his letters to the Romans about waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, he is reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus himself. Because Jesus is a forerunner and then a guarantor of our resurrection. In verse 24, Paul says, in this hope, we were saved. He's talking about the certain hope of resurrection based on the unshakable fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and on Jesus' words. I want to go back now to a scene from the Gospel of John. Let's think back to that moment outside the tomb of Lazarus, where Jesus is standing and talking to Lazarus's sister, Martha. Lazarus has just died. And Martha seems to have lost entirely all hope. She's bitterly, bitterly disappointed that Jesus wasn't there to save her very sick brother. 
And she knew that if he'd been there, he could have saved her brother's life. And so she says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. just going to read now from the rest of that chapter. But Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Sorry, I'll read that bit again because I I realise I've got something wrong in the verse. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? That was quite a challenging question for Martha, wasn't it? There she was, hoping Jesus would have saved her brother, but her brother's dead. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And And then asks, do you believe this? Well, it's a little bit challenging. It's a challenge for us too. Do we believe this? It's a question Jesus poses to all of us. If we don't believe it, then actually there's little room for any hope beyond this world and this life. But if we do believe it, then this belief has the capacity to become a hope that bubbles up inside us. It's like pure water from a mountain spring. And it wells up into eternal life. I'd like to conclude by considering a story that's been in the news recently. We all witnessed the story of the 33 Chilean miners trapped underground for a couple of months. And we saw their faces in the mine as they waited, courtesy of the television link, praying and hoping for rescue. They were entirely dependent down there on the work of their rescuers. And then we saw this amazing festive South American joy when they got to the surface and they were reunited one by one with their wives and their girlfriends and their families. Our story as Christians, I think, is a little bit like theirs. We, um, we have our hope bound up in our rescue. But consider this, our rescue has already been accomplished. We celebrated that in communion today. The shaft has been drilled. The lift is operating. We're moving upward out of a dark and shadowy world into actually an amazing reality of light and beauty and joy. Our greatest challenge is that this rescue seems to be taking our lifetime. And so we must wait patiently in hope. But there's another dimension to our rescue which the Chilean story does not do justice to. And it's this. There's something of the spirit of our rescuer present within us. The spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is transforming us from within. So that when we reach the surface, when we meet our rescuer, we will not be the same people or have the same body that we began with. Future glory? Yeah. But also a present reality. It's a change occurring in the now. It's not pie in the sky when you die. 
It's steak on the plate while you wait. We might be living in the not yet with its groans and its moans and its suffering and its patient waiting and praying without words, but we also sense something of Christ in us, transforming us and giving us hope. Later in the letter of Romans, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit causing believers to overflow with hope. This idea of overflowing actually recalls a conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well in Samaria. Perhaps you might remember that. She brought him water, and he talked to her about a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's a beautiful image. You can't suppress, you can't stop a spring bubbling up from underneath the surface of the ground. But sometimes, in our own lives, we might, uh, we might not allow this hope to bubble up as freely as it should. There are times when anxiety or fear or disappointment or negative thoughts, or the negative thoughts of others, divert our attention so that we stop drinking from our spring of eternal hope. We might even be tempted momentarily to think that the source of hope has run a bit dry. But it's a spring that never runs dry. Think back for a moment to Martha, outside the tomb of her dead brother, seriously disappointed that Jesus would let her brother die. She acknowledged that one day he'd rise from the dead. She had this idea of future glory, but she saw no hope in the present. And then Jesus comes along and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he emerges from the tomb, taking off his bandages, demonstrating in the present moment Jesus' resurrection power. It was, to understate the case, a bit surprising for Martha. And that same power, that same power to bring life in the midst of death, to bring hope in the midst of despair, that's present within us, in our earthly decaying bodies, through the Spirit of Christ. May we continue to overflow in Christ's surprising hope.